Joshua chapter 6, I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Joshua chapter 6. There is tremendous fear in the world uh, today. I don't think that is a a surprise to anyone sitting in this room. Uh, You may be harboring some fear this morning. Not just for yourself and your own well-being, but fear for your children or grandchildren. Fear over the spreading of a virus that we're learning more about, but we still, you know, there's no known cure of vaccination uh, to alleviate our fears. There's fear over employment and jobs uh, that may be at risk, over education, what that may look like in these next few months. Fear over the economy, which is far less than stable. Fear over unchecked violence. Hatred, lawlessness that is even masked or promoted uh, as a civil right. I certainly think uh, you know, reform may be necessary. It usually is. But we live in a time where it is difficult to even have a discussion about uh, reform before the words are spewed, fists flying, and we've made enemies of those that we don't even know, don't even care to know. So understandably, it's generated some fear in us, in the general population, raise some important questions for us as Christians and how we uh, respond in the face of fear. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have trouble, Jesus said. But he also said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. We don't live in fear. We respond um, in the love of Christ. Uh, I mentioned this this morning, um, living in the hope of the resurrection, but recognizing that fear is a reality. And it's a God-given emotion that moves us to action. And I open this because it helps us better better understand the atmosphere in Canaan with the people of Israel just inside their borders. The Canaanites, starting with the people of Jericho, they're really in a voluntary quarantine. Uh, They've locked their doors, they've boarded the windows, they're hiding their children. They are incapacitated by fear. So we're going to consider in chapter 6 here this morning, um, moves us into what what most would agree is a second section of this book. Um, We're going to get the the first five chapters, really a preparation for going into the land, and then chapter 6 through 12, the taking of the land. Um, Canaanites had to be driven out in order for this promised land to be divided. They had to be conquered um, so Jericho is this first stop, and uh, we're not going to read the entire chapter, but just these first five verses give us a good summary on how this is going to play out. Joshua 6, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one, straight before Him. To the holy inspired Word of our God. Let's pray together. 
Oh God, we are grateful that you would condescend to us in giving us your word. And we ask now that as we submit to your authority and to this word, that you would help us in understanding and applying it to our hearts, to our lives. Lord, we do not presume to do this on our own. We need your spirit to teach us, to encourage us, to warn us. Speak, O Lord, that we would hear and receive. Make us attentive. Speak faithfully through your servant. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Arkansas River Trail is one of the most popular, I would say, outdoor destinations here in Little Rock. If you want to go biking or, or walking or, or running along the trail, it's a little over a 15-mile loop from that Clinton Bridge to uh, the Big Dam Bridge. And I learned recently that if you keep going past you know, the Big Dam Bridge there and the, the Two Rivers Bridge on your, on your way to Pinnacle, it actually forms, it's still part of the Arkansas River Trail, but they call it the Grand Loop. And it's about 88 miles going up through Conway and, and back around. And, uh, but if, if you're riding the river trail, usually if I, if I get on the trail, I'm going down to Burns Park, and that's where I'll start to ride towards Pinnacle Mountain. But I have to go over the Big Dam Bridge if I'm going to get there. Uh, there's no way around that uh, if you want to stay on the Arkansas River Trail uh, and get to Pinnacle. And... Um, for the people of Israel, the road into the promised land meant going through Jericho. Um, this city is really the gateway into the land. If they're going to, to set up a place in which they can uh, pursue conquest to the north and to the south, and Jericho is that spot. There's no way around it. Very strategic location. And, and even the way Jericho was fortified helps us understand this. Not a large city, really. Jericho is only about, about seven acres total area, so it's more of a fortress. Uh, they've done some excavation of this uh, site in, in, in the past here. and there, There's an outer wall and an inner wall that was four and a half feet thick uh, with a tower that looked out over this valley. So if this place was closed up, uh, then you weren't getting in very easily. Certainly not by the military tactics of the day. Um, we find for Israel, in the history of Israel, what may appear impossible, uh, insurmountable, is uh, certainly possible with a God in their midst. And so the Lord claims victory over Jericho before the people ever set foot out of the camp. Jericho was already a defeated enemy, uh, but the people still needed to march in obedience to the Lord's instruction. So I really want to ask ourselves what was required in this battle. Uh, what do we see in Joshua and the people's actions that help us as pilgrims in this land face the battle, uh, the battle of the world, the flesh, and the devil every day? The first thing we see is that the people represented here by Joshua as their leader, they listen carefully to the instructions of the Lord. Everything we read in verses 1 through 5, is the Lord speaking and laying out for Joshua this battle plan. Very possible it was the commander of the army of the Lord that's giving this instruction to Joshua. So he's already in a posture of saying, Here I am, Lord, what do you say? I'm ready to listen. Hearing the voice of the Lord was the most important part of this battle. That wasn't even a battle. They wouldn't need military might. Joshua wouldn't need to, 
bring his leaders together for a special a battle plan. He needed to listen in order to enact uh, the marching orders that God had given. So it's not obvious to the people of Israel yet. This is another example of God's power, that he's fighting for them, that the battle belongs to him. Now Jericho is the first stop, but throughout the Old Testament, these physical battles of Israel highlight the greatness and power of God. Not human strength, not human ability. The Lord's battles, the Lord's victory. And that's true today. The church, the true Israel of God, is in a battle. It's not marching around a city. We don't wage war against flesh and blood. The battle is now a spiritual battle. A battle against the forces of evil. It's a battle against sin that rages. Even as the Lord purges that evil and rebellion through His people here in the Old Testament, He purges and drives out the sin that is bound up in our hearts. The working of the Holy Spirit. But the marching orders, the plans to combat sin and rebellion in our lives uh, and in this world are His. And we need to listen carefully. We need to assume that posture of worship in our hearts and minds so that we can hear what God is saying. So is your life so busy, you have so many balls that you're juggling in the air, so quick to you know, go to the media clickbait that you don't have time to listen? We're speaking so loudly through, through the making of our own plans trying to solve the problems around us that we're unable to hear God's voice to us, to listen to His instruction. So think, how is listening and hearing the voice of the Lord built into our days? Because the battle doesn't stop. There are no, there are no time out, as much as we would like one, from all this chaos and confusion and the corruption around us. There's no time out from the corruption within us. The war against sin. You say, well, I'm busy. Work is busy. My kids are here and there. Grandkids here and there. I have a trip to prepare for. There's crisis to work through. School schedule, and that starts up again. I just don't have time to attend to the spiritual battle, though it has ramifications for everything else we do. A dear friend of mine, he shared some thoughts on the use of time that I've always appreciated. What really is the, the myth, I guess you could say, of time management. Uh, we don't manage time. We're given the same amount of time today as we had yesterday and we'll have tomorrow. Uh, it's how we fill that time that is significant. Uh, we fill that time according to what is most important to us. So rather than time management, which is a fixed thing, it's really a management of self. We recognize sovereignty of God and circumstances that are beyond our control, happenings that are, are unexpected and so forth, and we have having to respond to that. But if we are committed to those things we value the most, that is where our time will be used. Even if that means very good things, wonderful things, beautiful things, don't get none. 
So if listening to the instruction of the Lord, hearing His voice in the midst of the rat race is important enough to us, there will be time for it. Time to stop, to quiet ourselves before the Lord and listen. He may share with us and show us a direction that we've never considered on our own. Even to gather with God's people, to listen. So it's the Lord's battle, His marching orders, but the people have a responsibility here, don't they? They are to hear the voice of the Lord and follow in obedience. Even when it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, take Jericho by walking in circles. Lord, have you seen this fortress? This seems ridiculous. And they couldn't even chat with the person next to them. Or you know, complain about the blisters they were getting on their feet after day two of walking around Jericho. God told them they weren't supposed to, to talk as they walked around the city. Just listen. Listen to the sound of those horns. And I love a good brass ensemble as much as anybody, but after seven days of just hearing ram's horns, it might get a little old. But the people listen. They needed to march in faith, actively trust the Lord to carry out this plan. Uh, the Lord didn't need their legs. He didn't need their weapons or their voices. They could have slept in every day and He could have toppled uh, the walls of Jericho without a problem. But He chooses to use them. Graciously includes them in this victory. And it's that obedience to God's command. That, that, that is what is rewarded. If we go to that great chapter of faith in Hebrews uh, 11. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. If I do the the math correctly, I think 13 times they circled uh, this city. Get up, march around, come back, go to sleep. Nothing happens. Reveille sounds, everybody up. Let's do it again, march around, come back, go to sleep. Nothing happens. I wonder if that would have been a little frustrating, a little confusing after a few days. What are we doing? What is God doing? Slightly embarrassed by this. But they exercise their faith by obeying God's commands, devoting the city to destruction. This was the first fruits of the conquest. Verse 21, it says, And they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. So to our ears now, to our sensibilities, this sounds ruthless. This sounds barbaric. Uh, really just the beginning. There's a lot of bloodshed over the next six chapters here in Joshua. How can this be okay? If God is a God of love and mercy and compassion, how can He approve this kind of slaughter? And there are many in the world that will say this, this God of the Old Testament is certainly not the same as the God of the New Testament. And they want nothing to do with this God. So we need to take a step back for a moment, uh, clean, clean our lenses here, remind ourselves of the character of God. He is love. He is mercy. He is compassion. And He is holy and just and righteous. In Genesis 12, the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham and his offspring, and He says, I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse. 
So those who stand against the Lord and against His chosen people are under a curse. They stand under the judgment of God. And then just a few chapters later in Genesis 15, God says of Abraham's offspring that they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So by the time we get to Joshua 6, the opening of this conquest, their iniquity is complete. They are ripe for judgment at the hand of God. And just the wickedness, the evil that, that pervades the land of Canaan, incest, adultery, homosexuality, child sacrifice, they're all practiced in the land. It just turns our stomach to even name those things. And when it's these types of practices that Israel was to abstain from, now are the people of Israel, well, are they just more well-behaved? A little easier for God to, to look past their rebellion and choosing them? Of course not. God is holy and just. And before His holiness and purity, all men everywhere are fully deserving of the punishment and slaughter that we see unleashed in the land of Canaan. So the Canaanites are receiving what all men rightfully deserve. And those are spared. They're spared by the, the mercy and the grace of God alone. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. You know, why doesn't God show mercy to everyone everywhere then? But is it not even more astounding and incomprehensible that God, in our depravity, in our rebellion against Him, would show mercy to one? But He does. So this destruction in the land of Canaan, it's very specific. Uh, the people of Israel didn't have this blanket approval to just wipe out anybody uh, anywhere. Um, it's a specific conquest at a specific time in a specific place. Um, a specific intention. Um, but do we in our own spiritual battle, life as God's people, obey the commands of God faithfully? Even when we don't understand how God is working and what the result may be. Are we faithful? We may not know how He's going to accomplish His purpose, but we do know that it's good. We do know that He wins. I mean, in that regard, we know the very end result. Full and complete victory. But we, do we trust Him with the means to accomplish this? According to His plan. God, God doesn't need me or my gifts to accomplish His purpose. He doesn't need you or your skills. Nothing about His plan or His purpose for the world is dependent upon whether you or I are here. But He graciously works through us. He calls us to be faithful, to be a part of His plan as we obey His Word. And friends, what I've just said is absolute nonsense to the world around us. Uh, to acknowledge that God actually controls the means and the ends and to serve Him faithfully even when we don't understand what He's up to, I mean, that, that really is laughable to the majority of the people that you know. Um, hey, when the going gets tough, what? Well, the tough get going. Um, you know, throw off this God baggage. Take the bull by the horns. Especially if it doesn't seem to be working out for you. You've tried it, okay. But give it up. It's the prevailing attitude 
When we listen to God's word, this is what we hear him say, he who endures to the end will be saved. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast, who is faithful under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. God delights in, he honors obedience to the very end. And we will fail. We will. We'll lose many of these little battles along the way, but Christ has won the war. He's claimed full victory that we could never do on our own. Think of Hebrews chapter 5. It tells us that Jesus learned obedience through what He suffered. In Philippians 2, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. So faithfulness and obedience is God's desire. And they really go together. If we say we have faith, if we say that we trust the Lord, that trust is lived out in obedience to His instructions. So faith without the the action and obedience that validates that faith is no faith at all. It's just sort of an expansion of James chapter 2. So we can't say, well, yeah, I trust the Lord. He takes care of me, but then there's no real time or real desire to lean into His Word and follow His instruction. To do battle with the flesh. Battleground may be His for the moment, but the strongholds of Satan just like the fortress of Jericho, will fall when we listen and obey faithfully. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, Paul says. The divine power to destroy strongholds. Brothers and sisters, we need to continue this fight to run the race in His power, in His strength. We're not going to gain any traction in this spiritual battle apart from Him, the testimony of His Word to us. So as we unroll this a little bit, do you have those in your life who can encourage you with the promises of God's Word? And you for them. Do you have those in your life whom you can really trust to speak honestly? And they're honestly in the Lord. And in the Lord is probably the most important part there. That speaking can be done with truth and grace. What you're doing, brother or sister... I mean, it's wrong. How can you need to pray over this? The way you responded to, to this situation or to that person, it wasn't wise, and here's why. And, and I think most of us can say, well, yeah, I'm happy to be that person. Um, I'll hold you accountable. I'll tell you where you've messed up, uh, what I think you should do. But do you have the humility and the meekness of spirit to receive this feedback from those that, that you love? And those who have covenanted with us within the body of Christ, faithfully before the Lord, really underscores the importance of covenant membership in the church. No time to really go into that. But The people of Israel have completely surrounded the city 13 times walking in a circle, and they shout like they've never shouted before. They were ready after six days. So the walls break down, and they just move in. Every man right before him. Judgment had come upon the land of Canaan beginning with Jericho. And as the first fruits of this conquest, everything in the city is devoted to the Lord. The city was under a ban is the language here. Meaning everything was either destroyed or set apart for a sacred use. The gold, the silver, the bronze. Nothing in the city was plundered. No 
you know, all the animals, the dishes, the silverware, the nice acacia wood table that would have looked nice in the corner of the tent, they had to leave it. Um, it's all burned as an offering to the Lord. We see in verse 24. But there is a family within this fortress that has no longer aligned with the Amorites. Rahab has devoted herself to God. So she and her family then are not devoted to destruction. There's so much ink spilled here in chapter, I mean, really, verses 22 through 25, to emphasize that God is just as concerned, if not more so, with the saving of Rahab as he is with the judgment of Jericho. This is God's mercy. His mercy abounds in the midst of this judgment. Rahab's family is brought in. God has rescued them, gathered them to his people. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household, all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Those who turn to the Lord, who devote themselves to the Lord, will be received. Is that your testimony? Is that your joy this morning? The fate of Jericho, the judgment upon Canaan, that will come to all. Just to foreshadow the judgment upon all who refuse to submit to the Lord. Refuse to submit to His kingdom rule. So folks, this is not something to, you know, to mess around with. The Lord takes rebellion against Him very seriously. Judgment is sure. A certain first fruit for a life lived apart from Him. Walls of Jericho were, were closed off, shut up on the outside and on the inside. As the hearts of men are shut up to the kingdom of God. So this judgment is just. It's a natural consequence for the hardened heart living in the way that it desires. Go to Romans chapter 1 for some more on that. God gives us the freedom to devote ourselves to Him. Or to separate ourselves from Him by putting... um, Well, we can separate ourselves from Him if we put anything else in all creation in His place, at the very center. We've been made to worship. That cannot be avoided. But we're made to worship God alone, to devote ourselves to Him alone in obedience. And it's in that place, that place under the, the kingdom rule of God and among His covenant people that we have life, that we have hope, that we have true freedom. Freedom from fear. Freedom the fear of viruses and violence, freedom from the fear of living forever under the wrath of God. So the fate of Jericho, the rest of Canaan, um, this should motivate us to listen carefully, live in obedience to our King all the more, times that we're in, the midst of uncertainty and the spiritual battle that we're engaged in every day. So if you're here this morning, if you have not devoted your life to the Lord, Please don't shut up your heart against God. Please do not leave here this morning without some serious consideration of the reality of God's judgment and your need of His mercy. He is just and He is mercy. He is truth and He is grace. And that grace is no small gift. It is costly. It cost Him the life of His only begotten Son, the just judgment of God poured out upon Christ.
that you might live in freedom, that you might live in peace. And so we celebrate, we're refreshed in that freedom as we feast at the table this morning. Let's pray together. Lord God, the battle is yours. It was for your people and it is for us. Help us to listen to this battle plan that you have given to us. For you are at work in us by your Spirit. As we look and lean into you, Lord, help us to trust you, to follow you in faithful obedience, devoting ourselves to you and not to the things of this world. Lord, we are grateful, not just for this reminder, but for the enabling power of your Spirit that allows us, enables us to walk in obedience. Lord, we thank you for feeding us from your word. Now as we go to your table, uh, refresh us, uh, feed our faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.